from the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. It's 1 p.m. in Cranbrook, British Columbia. At Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, it's still the same time as it was last week, 8 o'clock. And over in the video studio at HarperCollins, New York, it's coming to you in 3, 2, 1. Good evening. Good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are, welcome to Latopia After Dark. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can, and don't hold back in the chat room. The future for the author is uncertain. It's a highly competitive market. And it's not just the fight to get published, it's also the battle in retail. So, what's an author to do? Our special guest this evening could be considered a signpost to the future for authors. Only a few weeks ago, publishing maven Martin Daniels was telling us on this show that she's the best example of an author who gets it about the new digital media age and who's using it in highly creative ways. She is Kate Pullinger. First up, our obligatory J.K. Rowling item of the week. She's been called hypocritical, disgusting, insane, vain and greedy. All this by another legendary author. Who said it and why? Coming up in a moment. Also this week, the New York Times magazine prints a major feature on the one-woman publishing phenomenon, Louise Hay. 81 years old and one of the biggest-selling authors in history. Not just that, but maybe even the original Author 2.0. She parlayed her success to create a massive publishing empire. Obama uses Stevie Wonder, McCain uses Chuck Berry, Blair used Dee Ream, and Hillary Clinton is Catholic in her choice of campaign music. Now, we're not turning into a music show. We're going to talk about how original creative works get used and sometimes abused. Meanwhile, in New York, HarperCollins have just installed a video studio. They want authors to record videos, 500 of them, every year. Hmm, that's some effort. What are they going to use them for? All this tonight on Let's Hope You're After Dark. Plus, the big question. We all pretty much know what Web 2.0 is. What I want to know is, what is Author 2.0? How can you recognise it? How will it sell books? And have you got it in you? Here to help me address these momentous issues are, originally from Canada, but now from London, UK, distinguished writer and indeed author 2.0 prototype, Kate Pullinger. From deepest Scotland, writer and Latopia's podcast officer, Eve Harvey. From Fort Lauderdale, Florida, writer and lawyer, Donna Borman. And from London, England, one of the first students to be accepted for Britain's prestigious National Academy of Writing, Richard Howes. Richard, author 2.0 is just round the corner. Your course at the National Academy of Writing, isn't it just preparing you for a job that soon won't exist? It's think that wouldn't you uh, actually uh, at the national academy we've we've been very good in covering a lot of different disciplines so we've got it covered we're all going to go into uh, play writing <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> don't know what to say really 
Kate. So authors uh, now have to present their own YouTube videos. Isn't it enough just to write a good book these days? I think it probably is enough just to write a good book these days, but I think there's lots of other things that people should be thinking about and trying out and, and experimenting with as things become increasingly, mm. digital pa- platforms become increasingly part of our everyday yeah. lives. Yeah, well, it sounds good, and we'll be uh, thinking about that later in the programme. Eve, can you see yourself as a, an author 2.0? I'm sure I could probably have a go as soon as I work out what an author 2.0 actually is. We're going to define it. We're going to pin it down tonight. <laughs> oh, that would be great. Yeah. Thank you. Donna, just like politicians, authors will soon need their own campaign theme tune. So what's yours? Well, if I had to say about my life now, it'd have to be either unwritten by Natasha Bedingfield <laughs> and by, by Martina Pride. But if I'm doing one for my novel, it would have to be either Voodoo by Spice Girls or Zombie by the Cranberries. Uh, yeah, I, well, I appreciate that reference. Hopefully lots of other people will, will too in due course. Uh, there's no news just yet from the big trial involving J.K. Rowling against RDR Books and their Harry Potter lexicon. However, in the meantime, legendary science fiction author Orson Scott Card has jumped into the fray in an excoriating attack on J.K. that calls her hypocritical, disgusting, insane, <laughs> vain and greedy. Yes, it's an impressively venomous rant from Card, who himself is not immune to controversy. He's been called, amongst other things, homophobic. And this is what he writes. Can you believe, he says, that J.K. Rowling is suing a small publisher because she claims that 10,000 word, uh, 10,000 copy edition of the Harry Potter lexicon, a book about Rowling's hugely successful novel series, is just a rearrangement, quote, of her own material. Rowling feels like her words were stolen, said her lawyer. Well, heck, says Orson Scott Card, I feel like the plot of my novel Ender's Game was stolen by J.K. Rowling. A young kid, he says, growing up in an oppressive family situation, suddenly learns that he is one of a special class of children with special abilities who are to be educated in a remote training facility where the student life is dominated by an intense game played by teams flying in midair, at which this kid turns out to be exceptionally talented and a natural leader. He trains other kids in unauthorised extra sessions which enrages his enemies who attack him with the intention of killing him. But he's protected by his loyal, brilliant friends and gains strength from the love of some of his family members. He's given special guidance by an older man of legendary accomplishments who previously kept the enemy at bay. He goes on to become the crucial figure in a struggle against an unseen enemy who threatens the whole world. This paragraph, he says, lists only the most prominent similarities between Ender's Game and the Harry Potter series. My book, he says, was published in England many years before Rowling began writing about Harry Potter. Rowling was known to be reading widely in speculative fiction during the era, during the era after the publication of my book. I can get on the stand and cry too, Miss Rowling, he says, and talk about feeling, quote, personally violated. The difference between us is that I actually made enough money from Ender's Game to be content without having to try to punish other people whose creativity might have been inspired by something I wrote. He says, it's true that we writers borrow words from each other, but we're supposed to admit it and not pretend we're original when we're not. I took the the word ansible from Ursula Le Guin, and have always said so. Rowling, however, denies everything, and he goes on and gets seriously stroppy. He says, Rowling's hypocrisy is so thick I can hardly breathe. Um, He says, this frivolous lawsuit puts at serious risk the entire tradition of commentary on fiction. Once you publish fiction, Miss Rowling, he continues, anybody is free to write about it, to comment on it, and to quote liberally from it, as long as the source is cited. You know what I think's going on, he says. Rowling has nowhere to go and nothing to do now that the Harry Potter series is over. Uh, She is desperate, he says, for literary respectability. 
Uh, it makes her insane, he says. The money wasn't enough. She wants to be treated with respect. Talent does not excuse Rowling's ingratitude, her vanity, her greed, her bullying of the little guy, and her pathetic claims of emotional distress. And he finishes by saying, so it's a good rant, actually. It's a good old-fashioned rant, worth reading. Um, he says, Rowling has now shown herself to lack a brain, a heart, and courage. Clearly, he says, she needs to visit Oz. Oh, I feel better for that. Um, <laughs> so, what, what do we, what do we, what do we think about this? I mean, hopefully, we're not totally talked out about J.K. Not just yet, at least. I mean, by the side, card does say that writers borrow from each other all the time. So, J.K. I suppose he's effectively saying you should just sort of take it and bear it. But how far can you go, or ought you to go, when being influenced by another writer, Kate? Well, I think Brand has got the wrong end of the stick there. Actually, I think, I think that. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to talk about whether or not I approve of Rowling's legal action, but what she's doing is protecting her brand. And it has much, it's, it's much more akin to what would happen if the, ba- the makers of um, Machinima, which, as you know, is you know, using, using games to create your own movies, or uh, indeed people who write fan fiction on the internet, of which there's a huge amount, you know, spin-offs of Star Trek, etc., people who inhabit those worlds and write their own fiction about those worlds. Um, traditionally, neither of those forms are allowed to, to be commercialized. Yeah. They're tolerated by the games companies. Yes. In fact, they're encouraged by the games companies who now build machinima engines into their games yeah. because, you know, it's fantastic viral marketing for them same for fan fiction mm. and what the lexicon the lexicon is a much more is 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 like one of those enterprises but the minute he, somebody tries to make money from one of those things the people who own the brand are going to come down like a ton of bricks and yeah. that indeed is what rolling has done it's okay. like McDon- you know it's like more like mcdonald's than the dan brown case which i think is the kind of case that brand is referring to yes um, so, I mean, I so at least you can understand what's going on here. I mean, but, but I mean, come on, I'm going to put you on the spot, Kate. Whose side are you on here? I don't know, actually. It is. Oh. It's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. It, I, I, you know, I, I'm following it. I, I think it's. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, I think it's it's an interesting case because of the ramifications that it'll have for things like fan fiction and, and machinima and yeah. people who try to try to make money out, out of creative works that are that are very parasitical to other creative works. Mm. Um, so I, I I don't I really don't know. It's it's fair, but it's very interesting. Yeah, Eve. Um, we haven't had you on for a few weeks, and uh, you know, I mean, everyone really has expressed an opinion on this several times now. But it's such a big story, we do have to cover it. Um, what, where do you stand? I just don't see where all the vitriols come from. I I actually don't think J.K. has got much to do with it at all. I think Warner Brothers have a huge foot in her back. Mm. I don't think it's her kind of thing. I don't think that's what you know she's about at all mm-hmm. uh, and my husband saw her this morning walking down the road not a care really? in the world in so, scotland yeah well we live in edinburgh so um, he oh. phoned me this morning to say oh. and my mom had a cup of tea next to her last the other week so wow. it's um did she ask her no. what's going on she should have done <laughs> no, i tell you what I next should. time next next time you tell your mom <laughs> say to jk <laughs> Will you come on Latapia After Dark and explain yourself? Right. Shall I, I go think. and hang out where she's where she yes. drinks the tea and writes her next writing her next book? Yes. Because I think we she could give her some good advice, don't you? I think she so. she is invested in it though, isn't it? Isn't she? Because she did appear on the stand and and, oh, yeah. and cry. Yeah. So um, yeah. Mm, uh, I, I don't know. 
I just don't think it's her type of thing. I think she believes in the kids and the story, and and I think it's it's there's very much something making her do this. Either they're talking her into it, or they're you know they're talking around to see if this happens. Blah blah blah. You'll lose. You know, yeah. I think it's a much bigger thing than she wouldn't have done it herself. But she I is really big enough. I mean, I, you know, we, well, well, let's not go over this too much. But because we, we, you know, because there will be a judgment of sorts, which I'm sure will get appealed and just go on and on. So we will have to return to it again, time and time and time and time again. But I mean, she is big enough, you know, to turn around to, and say to anybody in the universe, Warner Brothers, her publishers, doesn't matter what, don't do it, just stop. So actually, reason, you know, she is in the driving seat, isn't she? Really, the reason that she's as big as she is is because she's been extremely clever in creating her brand. She, she has understood that from day one. She's been hugely in control of the film, the films. Mm. She's been very involved in all the different elements of what has happened with Harry, Harry Potter. Um, she's done a fantastic job of protecting her brand. And I mean, I have no doubt that she, you know, that she's a good person. And that's, that's not what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. But it is that she is no, protecting it, well, her Orson brand. Also, Scott Carter's, that's, he's talking about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is. Oh, my Ooh. goodness. I'd love a good rant. Um, she's, author, she's got the attributes of author 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> Does she? I'm trying to get a new buzz okay. voice going here. Okay, come on, give me a hand. I wonder if she Googles herself. <laughs> the way, the way you, sound, you say that, it sounds almost rude. <laughs> That's a good uh, from one incredibly powerful, hugely successful uh, woman in, in publishing to another one. Uh, New York Times this week carries an in-depth piece on a one-woman literary ph- phenomenon. It's not J.K., it's Louise Hay. She's one of the best-selling authors in history, and none of the women uh, who have sold more than her, J.K., Danielle Steele, Barbara Cartland, actually owned a publishing empire. The Louise Hay story, You Can Heal Your Life, sold 35 million copies. It's certainly inspiring. I actually met Louise uh, last year when she was over here at the London Book Fair, and she really is quite a character. This is what Mark Oppenheimer wrote this week in the New York Times. Uh, she was born in Los Angeles, writes Mark, to a hard luck mother who soon married Louise's brutal stepfather. There was violence within the house and without. And when she was about five, Louise was raped by a neighbour. Ten years later, she dropped out of high school, became pregnant, and on her 16th birthday, gave a newborn girl up for adoption. She moved to Chicago, worked menial jobs, and in 1950, left for New York, where she took on a new name. She was born neither Louise nor Hay, uh, and was, to quote, uh, You Can Heal Your Life, the 1984 book that made her rich and famous, quote, fortunate enough to become a high-fashion model. 1954, she married the English businessman Andrew Hay, with whom she travelled the world, met royalty and even had dinner at the White House. When after 14 years of marriage, Andrew Hay left her for another woman, Louise was devastated. But soon she found her way to the 48th Street home, it's still there, of the First Church of Religious Science, one of the many early 20th century groups that heralded the transformative power of thoughts. I heard somebody say there, if you're willing to change your thinking, you can change your life. Hay told me, says Oppenheimer. My jaw dropped. I said, really? And I, who had never been a student, became an avid reader. And from then onwards, really, she she didn't look back. She grew famous for her her work with AIDS patients, and particularly she was invited to appear on Oprah and Donahue in the same week, March 1988. You Can Heal Your Life immediately landed on the New York Times bestseller list. More than 35 million copies are now in print around the world. Hay House... 
The company she founded in 1987 to market her books soon began publishing, began publishing other New Age and self-help authors. Today, the company turns out books, CDs, calendars and card decks by many of the titans of the large world the booksellers are now calling Mind, Body, Spirit. Uh, the company takes in uh, over $100 million a year, 8% of which is profit. Um, her sort of style of, um, of philosophy or religion, mind, body, spirit, is, is, is broadly classified as metaphysical religion. It's a conviction that proper thinking rather than religious faith or fervor is the key to metaphysical power. Um, Oppenheimer goes on to uh, to talk that uh, to say that it's really thoughts, not just um, sexual behaviour. In this case, could help cause AIDS, venereal disease. Hay writes, and you can heal your life using her eccentric spelling. Is almost always sexual guilt. It comes from a feeling, often subconscious, that it's not right to express ourselves sexually. A carrier with a venereal disease can have many partners, but only those whose mental and physical immune systems are weak will be susceptible to it. Um, much of the money in this branch of the publishing business, New Age, Mind, Body, Spirit, was to be made in items other than books, in card decks, audio tapes, page-a-day calendars. Major authors like Wayne Dyer and Marianne Williamson, who first came to Hay House just for ancillary products like those, later abandoned big trade houses to also do their books with Hay House. Each product helps drive sales for the other products, making Hay House, explains Mark, uh, less dependent than most on the whims of book review editors and the buyers for megastores. The audience for this really is is enormous. Um, they they run seminars all over the place. Uh, I can do it. Las Vegas. The author Mark uh, Oppenheimer attended recently. Tickets go for four hundred and fifty dollars each, and there were seven thousand two hundred people there. Of course, all buying books and ancillary products. Flush with cash, Hay House can now lure authors with advances that rival those from the major houses. The sums vary, he says, from $10,000 to $1.5 million. Well, there's lots to admire about um, the, the growth of this publisher and indeed about um, Louise Hay personally, but What's the, the, the other side of the, of the coin? Isn't, couldn't it be a little bit of a cult, do you think, Donna? Well, you know, people are always going to look for answers. Who am I to say she's wrong? I, I respect everybody's sincerely held beliefs. It does sound a little bit like the secret maybe stole her ideas, though. So I, I think people are always looking for... I think, she, I think they published that. I'm not certain, but I think they actually published that. I, I don't know. People are looking for those kinds of answers. And, you know, if you can find your answer there... More power to you. So, I mean, uh, Eve, and what do you think the success of someone who claims that venereal disease is called by sexual guilt? What does that really say about her, her readers? Why right? did she come to the venereal disease question? Yeah, I was just wondering that myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea. It says, uh, uh, I, uh, mind you, I, I mean, you're going to think I'm a bit mad, but I do like all this new age thinking, positivity, and you're into and it. I do you're into think, it. Yeah, yeah, I love that. You got yeah, I love books? the idea of if you're positive, things will come to you. You know, scribbling wee symbols on your hand and and attract the law of attraction. Mm. I like that part of it. Yeah. Not and it, sure it, it, it works for you. It works for you. Yes, uh -huh. it does actually. It does. Well, okay. partly. Oh, please, Sorry, it's, it's money well spent. Um, let me ask exactly the same question no, to no, Richard. No, no, I don't spend money on it. Oh, I you just don't. Leave it. Uh, Richard, what does the success of someone who, <laughs> who claims that venereal disease is caused by sexual guilt really say about her readers? Uh, it, it's, it's a whole Scientology thing, isn't it? I mean, oh, it's not as bad as that, is it? 
this kind of thinking that keeps bums on seats, not actually doing anything. They're, they're all just sitting there reading about how good they can make their lives if they can make it work. So they, they, all these people seem to just buy the books and nothing much happens, I'm, I'm sure. They all just keep buying. Don't you, Eve? You just keep buying the books. No, I don't buy anything. <laughs> no, I don't buy not, anything. Not the ones of venereal disease. Just... No, <laughs> no, I definitely don't buy them. She well, steals the library it. books. You know this about it. Yeah, we've established that already, I'm afraid. It's, it's, just... it's a sad, sorry <laughs> story north logic. of the border. <laughs> None I mean, of them think, are live. Think happy thoughts, and you're, you're going to be... Yay! Yeah. Just, just yes. this week, the, the BBC website reported that, that flowers aren't actually blowing in a breeze. They're really just waving at passing insects. <laughs> uh, I, mean, it's I think insane. there's a book they, deal there, Richard. I think there's the, the, a book deal there. Certain, <laughs> certain flowers, rather than just blowing, that they, they particularly wave at certain insects. You know, hello, mm. it's me. Would you like to sit on my face? Mm. <laughs> and, uh, How beautiful. It's crazy. That's really quite touching. Kate, do you think this genre is going to keep on selling forever and ever and ever? I guess so, yeah. It's a... Uh... I don't know. It's a part, kind of, you know, it's a part of the bookshop that I don't really, I don't really inhabit myself. Oh, isn't that? Um, isn't that strange? I mean, no one admits to buying any of these books, but they just keep on selling hundreds of billions of copies. Yeah, I mean, who, who, who? Re- it's the same people who voted for Boris Johnson, isn't it? Yes. Oh, yes. It could well be actually. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Watching the US presidential hopefuls um, on television uh, this week, I was actually intrigued by their use of popular music to both entertain and arouse the crowds. Barack Obama blasts the crowds with Stevie Wonder's Science Seal Delivered, and John McCain reaches out to the Viagra and Rogaine generation, no cracks please Richard, uh, with Chuck Berry's hit Johnny Be Good, reaching all the way back to 1958. And then of course, who can forget those deeply tragic shots a few years ago of Britain's Tony Blair wielding his Fender Stratocaster in a pitiable bid to be the one thing he never was and never could be, which is cool. A new book out this week looks at the long and often disreputable history of music, mostly classical music, as it's been used and abused by some of the nastiest politicians in the 20th century. Alex Ross's The Rest is Noise tellingly points out that when any self-respecting Hollywood arch-criminal sets out to enslave mankind, he listens to a little classical music to get in the mood. Writing the Times Literary Supplement, Ian Bostrich points out, if we were to ask why... At the opening of the 20th century, and through the horrors of its first five decades, classical music retained such importance. The answer would have to be Germany. Classical music, music which was more than entertainment, music which demanded irreverent attention, and which even made metaphysical claims, was written into the very DNA of German culture. The German question, the political and diplomatic issue of how the German nation fitted into the world, dominated international affairs in the century between the 1848 revolutions and the Second World War. This was reflected in the philosophical and cultural preoccupations of the European elites, rooted as they were in German philosophical conceits and German political anxieties. Hegelianism, Marxism, nationalism, Wagnerism, love them or hate them, he says, they all came from Germany. And they framed the terms of debate and philosophy, political theory and music. And he goes on to say that the threatening rhetoric of Hitler's coded language about the Jews from the Kroll Opera speech of 1939 on the eve of war and the speeches from the period of the exterminations themselves are drenched in Wagner and Ross, who's the author of the book, acutely picks out the references to Parsifal in the Führer's tirades. So I 
wonder, after thinking about the way that music has been used and is still used as a central plank of the political uh, platform, how can we listen to certainly this type of music these days with a with a clear conscience? Ah, uh, well, music is music, isn't it? I mean, it, it's a, it's a great it's a great art, and it moves beyond those kinds of things. I I do really I do really believe that, and I think it's I mean it's I think it's interesting. I think it's you know the great German Romantic tr- tradition is. Um, is for for contemporary Germans, it's this really tricky thing of trying to come to terms with your recent history, while knowing that your your country and your culture is responsible for you know some of the greatest art um, ever produced. Um, it's, you know, interesting. Richard, I mean, classical music's power to to move people, manipulate them, coerce the masses. Do you think it's still strong now, today, in the age of dream and so on, as it was in the last century? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I'm I'm a. Do you? A big fan of um, classical music in films, uh, and certainly John Williams. I mean, uh, I was just reading an article uh, today, uh, and Michael Kahn, the editor of uh, Raiders of the Last Ark, was saying uh, about John Williams' music and how it lifts the picture up a couple of notches from what they originally had on the editing suite. You know, everything comes alive uh, and, and elevates uh, films and brings them to a new kind of emotional level. And, and that's really what, what people like Hitler were kind of buying into but when they were using them to back up their arguments and to really stir up the crowd. Well, you can't blame Wagner for Hitler um, any more than you can blame uh, Chuck Berry if John McCain doesn't turn out to be Johnny Be Good. Um, (laughs) It's it's a a little bit silly to connect the music to the politician. Uh, Politicians love to use music in their campaigns and uh, in connection with their speeches, because it really does uplift the crowd. It 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 uh, gets them excited about the candidate, and hopefully, the people in the crowd will associate the music with the candidate. But I don't think you can blame the musician for the candidate. But I mean, how, how far should you know the musician or indeed writers, because we're talking about um, creative people? I mean, how, how far should they let themselves, do you think, and their work be exploited by politicians? If, if you support the politician, why not let let the politician use your music or your work um but if you don't i think there was a a, a bit of a flap um a, a few years ago where a, a a politician used some work that um by an artist who did not support them who supported yeah. their opponent and the artist made them pull the music from their ads mm. I, I think it has to i think uh, musicians and artists have the right to support candidates and probably have the duty to support candidates that that they like and it's interesting isn't it music isn't the the way that music is used by politicians or indeed the advertising industry isn't always the you know the way that the music was originally written and one of my favorite examples of that is Lou, Lou Reed's song per perfect day uh which is a you know incredible song about um heroin use and um Hmm. the the bbc chose that song for one of their you know really big television publicity campaigns and um that just always struck me as really very ironic i mean clearly lou reed is giving permission for the bbc to you to he's indeed making money from the bbc using his song in that way but it always rather amused me it's extraordinary he probably thought it was ironic considering that i, I bet radio one first refused to play the song on yeah when it was yeah. released on the grounds of its content yeah. <laughs> the bbc supporting drug use everywhere <laughs> That's right. Be a junkie stoner and join us. 
<laughs> well, classical music is in decline. I mean, you know, it's in long-term decline, really, isn't it? And, uh, I mean, is, can we deduce anything from that? Is that sort of a harbinger of, um, I don't know, our waning interest in all things culturally challenging? Does anybody think? Classical music was newfangled in, in its time, and it was the popular music just a short while ago. We have a, a, a pretty short memory about uh, how long ago some of this stuff was pretty controversial, and now it's going to be the Beatles that will be considered classical music. I, I don't think that it's a decline of society. I just think we've moved on to new art forms. Yes, certainly you've, you've got your, your hybrids now, such as your, your Rob Duggins and your ES Posthumus, uh, your Banco de Bias and your Enigmas, who, who really are, are infusing the, uh, the old classical music with the Gregorian chants with the heavy beats. And I, I think it's just a development of what we've already got. This week, HarperCollins announced it's launching its own in-house internet video production studio, moving from books into new media. They say it will be modelled on a newsroom environment. Uh, quote, we'd like to be able to move quickly, they say, in response to any opportunity to shoot, edit and post an author talking about their work. Uh, the videos will be shot in a Q&A style and they plan to make 500, 500 videos annually. That's, a, that's 10 a week. It's a heck of a lot. Um, I don't know what HarperCons are planning to do with this. They're going to spam YouTube or something? Well, I can't imagine it would sell to anybody over 25 a single book. But for the young adult market, it's probably gold. Uh, that's where I'd focus on it because those folks are used to looking at stuff on YouTube. So, I mean, Kate, have you ever seen – I mean, I, I'm, I confess I haven't – but have you ever seen um, a really good uh, author video that's, you know, that's, that's been effective and done what it's supposed to do, which is sell books? Oh, yeah. No, I actually think there's loads of them. I mean, there's this outfit – there's this this outfit called Meet the Author that's been making them for a number of years now. But does it do um, any they, good? Well, yeah, I, I have no idea. I don't uh. know what the kind of market statistics are on it, but it's um, there. They seem to me like effect fairly effective pieces of marketing. I mean, it is just it is just another type of marketing, but um, it's an, it's it's an interesting one because. Our culture is so is so visual now and increasingly becoming more visually oriented that it's just really interesting to see a book company making what is effectively either you know television or indeed little movies to try to get people to, to buy books. Yeah. Um, well, people, people, people are watching sort of videos on, on YouTube of fluffy kittens and things, aren't they, Rich? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, I'm sure you do. That, that's all I use. It. Yeah. Exactly. Kittens falling off <laughs> sofas. And yes. I, I think this is a big stunt by HarperCollins to rickroll people. <laughs> yes. to, to one site and then they end up listening to Rick Astley's uh, yeah. view up. Yeah. Uh, but but it, it's, it does seem, kind of, as Kate said, it's a bit backwards. It's, it's like, um, I don't know, advertising forks on TV, isn't it? Buy a fork. You know. Well, that makes sense, some sense at least, doesn't it? Because, you know, TV dinners and so on. But, um, Eve, I mean, as, as, you know, as, as a budding author, so you've not just got to write the book now, you've actually got to get up there in front of the camera and promote it. How's, how does that make you feel? It makes me want to run and hide somewhere. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think you're yes. alone. I think a lot of authors feel like that too. Mm-hmm. They'll let yes. you have a paper bag and draw a face on it. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't mind. Yeah, no, I would. I would hate it. I think I would probably hate it. I don't see unless you've got a blog, you can put it on, and then um, I, I know somebody who did one for the Meet the Author. Yeah. I don't know how successful it was. He embedded it in his blog, and and everybody went to look at it. But I don't. I don't know what else you would do with it. How do you attract? It's the same as you know. How do you attract somebody to find it? You can only just tell your friends about it anyway. Mm. Um, and 
and you'd rather just read the book. I mean, why would you want to sit and I don't know? I don't see what the point of it is actually. Yeah, well, we it, should, really. We, I mean, we'll see. You know, they start spamming YouTube with five hundred videos. I'm sure that'll irritate some people. I think um, that I mean, it, it might actually uh, be become a, a a more logical marketing tool for um, when and if um, people start reading on different devices apart from the book to call the book as a device as a, the book is just a piece of technology isn't it but if people start reading on e-readers or on phones indeed um mm-hmm. then perhaps this kind of little marketing thing that you get sent get sent to you on your phone you can watch a little watch a little interview with your favorite author maybe indeed that will then lead you to do the you know to click further to by the download so that you can read your latest, you know, the, the whatever from your favorite author on your phone or on whatever mobile device you decide to, to read on. Well, that, that um, certainly makes sense, doesn't it? That's certainly starting to make sense to you. I was saying Latopia's own M.G. Harris did a book trailer for her Joshua Files, yeah. which, again, it's the market that I'm saying I, I think makes sense. It's the young, young adult market. I see she's in the chat room saying she is, yes. about 2,000 views and loads of nice comments. So mm. I think it probably is a natural uh, thing for the young adult market. And her German publishers have asked her to uh, do the voiceover in German because uh, there's a nice German deal being done on that book. So... So, maybe, I'm just being a doubting Thomas. Um, moving on to our special guest this evening. I'm delighted to introduce, well, she doesn't need introducing because she's already been very active, Kate Pullinger. She was born in Cranbrook, British Columbia, and she went to high school on Vancouver Island. She dropped out of McGill University, Montreal, after a year and a half of not studying philosophy and literature, then spent a year working in a copper mine in the Yukon, northern Canada, where she crushed rocks with her bare hands. Amazing. Not quite, not oh, quite. Oh, I, I got that wrong, so what? <laughs> I used my teeth. <laughs> yeah, very useful for the publishing business. Um, she spent that money that she made there travelling, and she ended up in London, England, where she has been ever since. She's had oodles of book pub- books published. I'll, I'll ask her in a moment exactly how many, but uh, a serious number. Uh, she writes for film and for the digital media. She's been writer-in-residence in many places, including Battersea Arts Centre, the University of Reading, Her Majesty's Prison... Gartree and Her Majesty's Prison, Maidstone. She's reading creative writing and new media at De Montfort University, Leicester, where she teaches the online MA in creative writing and new media that she helped to set up. Her most recent digital work is www, and all these um, links will be in the show notes, of course, www.inanimatealice.com a multimedia graphic novel in episodes. Her new project, Flight Paths, is aimed at creating a networked novel on and through the internet. Uh, This could be the future for authors, but how many in the conventional, traditional meaning of the word want or have the capacity to go there? Are we looking at Author 2.0 for the new world of web? 2.0. 2.0. Are we counting down to the old world ceasing to produce income? How fast is the clock ticking? Let's try and get some answers to these questions from Kate tonight. Kate, how did you end up grinding rocks? <laughs> uh, well, I, my sister was living in the Yukon at the time, so it seemed like a good idea to run away from what I was getting up to in Montreal and go go live in, um, in the Yukon. And um, she helped me get a job at the mine and uh, mm. Yes, it was extremely well paid. Well, it would be because nobody else would want to do it. <laughs> Good grief. I don't know. Writing, uh, when did that come into your life and uh, how, uh, 
what was your motivation initially? Oh, um, really, just something I, I've always done since I was a since I was a child, really, and I never really seriously wanted to do anything else, which was part of the mm. reason why I f- failed so miserably at university. Um, I, you know, it, it, then there weren't any creative writing programs really around, and uh, so it that kind of you know that wasn't an option for me. Um, so I just. Uh, pursued this this idea of 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 writing and um it was really very tied up really with my idea of coming coming to live in london the two things really went hand in hand both sort of i don't really know where either of these things came from except with living in london it was a kind of combination of um, you know, we have Shakespeare and the Sex Pistols having yeah. having heavy combination there. Yeah, <laughs> wow. having missed out on on punk being in the wrong place, the wrong time, not quite not quite the right age, etc. I I felt that I had to come to where it all where it all came from and see 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 what it was all about. Yeah, um, and that was very much tied up with my notions about being a being a writer. Um, I think I I believed that that London would be you know in all, the whole of London would be like Hampstead, which is the which is the, um, the sort of the greenest poshest bit of London, which yeah. most of London is nothing at all like. But that was the kind of idea I had in my head. Wow, I'm, as, yeah, yeah, I mean I'm I'm sorry, Hampstead isn't, isn't even like Hampstead these days. It's full of boutiques, dreadful place. You can't actually buy any uh, any basics there anymore. Um, but you can get all kinds of expensive suits and things. It says on your profile here that I just looked at from the uh, BBC website that you've written several normal novels which is... Normal? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is, in a way is kind of reassuring but it does imply you've done a lot of abnormal stuff too. Absolutely, yeah. What, what I do, do, yeah I don't, oh, you haven't I don't seen that? Normal. Okay. No, I haven't. No. Well, who knows what they mean. So, <laughs> so you... You came to London, you started writing. How did you first get published? Well, the, you know, it was the, the late 1980s. The publishing climate was very different than it mm. is now. I, I won a short story competition and had a, a another couple of short stories published in magazines. None of those magazines exist anymore. Uh-huh. And the competition doesn't exist anymore. And um, an editor at um, Jonathan Cape mm. read the stories and wrote me a letter and said... I like these stories. Have you got any more I could see? Which would and that would never happen now. Never in yeah. a million years would yeah. that happen now. Yeah. Um, short stories are just so deeply unfashionable, and 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 also, oh, just the whole climate is just so different now. So yeah. I was in that, in that instance, I was definitely in the right place at the right time. Um, so how many how many books actually have you published? Um, two collections of stories and five novels. I've just finished my sixth novel and handed it in a month ago. Right. So you're working. You're striding both. Um, um, media, aren't you? Really, you're working very creatively in new media, but you're still writing conventional linear narratives as well. Correct. Okay. So, how <laughs> did you particularly gravitate towards new media? Because there, there's a huge digital divide out there, isn't there? And very often people don't cross over. That's right. Well, I, again, I was, you know, I was, uh, I was lucky. I was um, asked to. To, by a, an acquaintance of mine um, to teach online um, at the time and this was 2001 there was um, a, a, a 
a, a thing what, um, a, called Trace, called Trace, which was an, an online community of writers, and they started up a commercial writing school called the Trace Online Writing School. And um, the woman who was the artistic director, Sue Thomas, was an acquaintance of mine, and she a- asked me if I would think about teaching a uh, online teaching a short story course and that led to a year-long um, research fellowship with Trace. Trace was part, part of Nottingham Trent University where I was given the whole year to uh, really l- look at um, what was happening with fiction in particular and narratives online and on digital platforms. And how long ago was this? Um, that, the fellowship was 2002, 2003. Okay. So the web was not nearly so developed then, was it? No, absolutely not. Mm. And to, to actually create any work yourself, you had to learn programming, oh, which no. I quickly realised I did not want to do. I was interested in writing. I was interested in stories. I wasn't really interested in, A, being a really bad web designer, or, C, grappling with code. Um so I, I quickly realized that if I was going to work in new media, certainly at that time, I needed to collaborate with people. Mm. But I'd done lots of collaborating in the past in other art forms. I, I you know, worked with a choreographer. I'd, I'd, I'd done lots of collaborating with visual artists, etc. So it was something I, was, I liked doing. So it, you know, realizing that if I, if I found other people who I wanted to work with, that, yeah. that this was a whole new field that I could explore was a real breakthrough for me. Mm. Do you, do you see that as being one of the sort of ways forward for, for authors then, Work, and not, not being their own completely self-contained universe anymore? I think it's one of the things that has held writers back, really, because writers are by nature often solitary creatures who, are, who aren't really interested in working with anyone else. Hmm. Um, uh, uh, but having said that, you know, things get easier online all the time, don't they? As yeah. we all know. Yeah. I mean, there was, there, you know, blogging templates. Think of how that has changed the way that people interact on the, on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and all, you know, increasingly there's more. I mean, look at us here broadcasting live yeah. on yeah. the Internet. I mean, well, some people five would call years that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be unimaginable, have been unimaginable, even, you know, even two and a half years ago. Yeah. So um, things do get easier all the time, which is which is why I hope that um, part you know more writers will start to explore this explore this area. So um, when we were talking to Martin Daniels about this this sort of subject uh, a few weeks ago, he he was saying basically um, writers have to redefine what what they consider to be what they do and what they produce and it's it's not always going to be 90,000 words sandwiched together by two pieces of cardboard um i mean how how radical can you go do you think i mean what what, what what's the fr- without any framework where, where do you start well that's that's kind of a how long is a piece of string question mm. isn't it i think that the important thing to remember is that the the this the novel as we know it is actually hasn't had that long of a history. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the 19th century, Wilkie Collins, Charles Dickens, they were all experimenting with how to publish. They yeah. published serialized, they, you know, they wrote great chunks of text to publish every week. Um, they experimented with pamphlets, they, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, this very fixed notion of, of the novel as the 17 to 90,000 word tome is, is a, you know, um, it has a relatively short history, and, yeah. and 
Certainly with what I've found with Inanimate Alice, my ongoing um, digital novel uh, multimedia project, is, is that, you know, the serialized form is really very suitable for all all types of these these platforms and i'm i'm currently um uh, you know my net my uh, one of my new projects is going to involve phones and again phones mm. are perfect for for serialization so i think that yeah i think a lot of people just get wedged into this idea of the the enormous novel and um, that there isn't really any anything beyond that yes um you mentioned in and alice um can you can you tell us about them? The first episode came out when it was two thousand and five. That's right. Yes, and uh, we've got a, a projected ten episodes, um, and we're about to release episode four. Right. So uh, you know, compared to Charles Dickens, we are extremely slow. Well, if you carry it this way, motion. yes, <laughs> it's, it's going to be two thousand and twelve, uh, two thousand and fifteen by right. the time. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, we'll, we'll speed we'll up with it. Um, but. I was um, I was thinking about this the other day. I was I've got this big lecture I have to do in a few weeks' time, and I was spending some time writing it. And I was I was thinking about *Inanimate Alice*, and I realized that it's really had it really has a, a, a large audience. It's um, it's had well over a million a million readers, and wow. uh, it's won a bunch of prizes. And it's you know I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to boast about it. What no, I what we, I wanna, we want we what want I, to know we want to know about it. <laughs> well, what I want to say about it is that. It's reached more readers than mm. all my books yeah. and all my radio plays and my single television drama. Mm. All those audiences put together, yeah. it's reached more people. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of amazing. And it that's, is, that's interesting. Yeah. It's, a, it's a sort of cross-platform thing, too. It's book lovers and gamers, too. That's right, yeah. Mm. Well, you've got, you've got an interestingly creative approach to this, but there is... You know, being sort of a hard-nosed agent, I have to, unfortunately, raise the subject of money. And how, how are authors going to survive like this? How are they going to get paid? I know that um, yeah, you wrote a piece in The Guardian, didn't you, a few weeks ago on this very subject? I did, yeah. Oh. I wrote a piece about um, digital royalties, royalties mm. for digital rights for um, e-books, etc., for basically talking about book contracts, um, traditional print book contracts, and how publishers are now trying to buy digital rights for new con- uh, new books, and also retrospectively um, uh, creating contracts for um, previously published books. Mm. A rights grab. Yeah, and yeah. Are, are you impressed with <laughs> a loaded question here? Are you impressed with what's on offer at the moment? Well, I think it's I think it's tricky. I think it's it, my my article was was about um, how when you take away the costs of publishing a print book, when you take away the warehousing, the shipping, the infrastructure, the paper, the cost of paper, the cost of printing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to create a digital project yeah. product. You also have to completely rethink the way the author is paid, and when you look at the the an economic breakdown of uh, you know a traditional publishing contract where a writer gets ten percent of the cover price of the book, that just does not make sense mm. for a digital a digital download. Um, but with all these things, it's really it's. It's kind, you know, it's kind of talking about bubbles in the air in a way because nobody really knows what's going to happen. And uh, as my own agent says, it's we're we're, we're arguing about um, 
royalty percentages on um, a, a product none of us have ever actually sold. Yes. <laughs> so, we're, you know, we're arguing about... It's a bit hypothetical, uh, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but we can still we're argue, though. It doesn't stop us arguing. You know, the sum of money is still zero, but we can have a really big <laughs> argument about it anyway. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Uh, just focusing on... I guess the basic approach, because that's, I think that's, you know, to me, that sounds very, very valuable. You've been through a sort of uh, a change of mindset yourself um, when you evolved, I suppose that's the right word, from, you know, con conventional writing and publishing to what you're doing at the moment, foot in both sides, of course. Um, some aspects of that that I've understood from what you're saying uh, get more experimental, um, uh, you know, no limits anymore, um, consider collaborating. Um, you also seem very, very excited by the future. And I know a lot of authors seem fearful. Yeah, I do think it's exciting. I do think that it, you know, as storytellers, we 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 need to be to be thinking about new ways to tell new stories, to engage new audiences, mm. um, and the, you know the, all the possibilities that there are for that in this in this new era where things are moving rapidly. Um, but at the end of the day, people. St you know, people's primary interest is still stories. We still want good stories. And that's, to me, that is exciting. That will always be exciting. But also, um, the, it, whatever platform I'm thinking about or writing to, um, it's the writing that's really the exciting thing, isn't it? Isn't I mean, it? Yes. And that, that doesn't change no matter what you if it's you know if it's creative writing that doesn't change no matter what platform you're thinking about i'm actually yeah, curious about the piano um you you co-wrote the piano and i was wondering kind of what your experience was in in seeing the screen adaptation and how it felt to see your work on the screen well that that's a, that's um that was that's a slightly complicated story. It's I didn't write the novel uh, that the film was based on. I wrote the novelization of the film with Jane Campion. Oh. So she wrote this film's screenplay, and then she made the film, and then she decided that she'd like to write a novel based on the film. Um, this was prior to the film coming out. So um, she started writing this novel, and... Uh, there's a you know number of different circumstances that transpired against her, and she realized that she needed to find somebody to work with on it. And um, I was at a sort of stage in my writing life where it's it seemed it seemed like a good idea, but I I so I then had to go on to write this um, novelization in six weeks. Mm. Um, so I wrote this 80,000 word novel in six weeks and I yeah. watched the piano uh, probably a million times and um, <sighs> I would be probably be happy if I never heard that music ever again. <laughs> 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 I love that music. I know, but I'm sure I would love it if I hadn't, you know, had to sit there for six weeks and listen to it. <laughs> hear it over and over again i actually heard it in a shop the other day for the first the first time for a long time i heard it and i did find myself thinking oh it is rather nice that music isn't it <laughs> you didn't suddenly enter into a, a mental block to like leave the shop as a, as a bull and a... <laughs> no <laughs> i think everything is okay hey, i want to ask you about uh, flight path what's all that about well this is a new a new uh, project of mine that you can find it 
flightpaths.net that I'm doing with Chris Joseph, who's my primary collaborator on things digital. Um, and it's an attempt to put put out, put ideas, put the kind of research stage of a novel out on the internet, and mm-hmm. um, ask people to contribute to it through multimedia, through audio files, sound files, image files, little pieces of stories, little texts, all that, all that kind of thing. Okay, uh, let me just um, ask: Does this relate back to the Penguin Project you also did? Well, it does in a way. It, it does in a way, in a, in a kind of indirect way. Um, that was a project that I did last year with my students at De Montfort University and Penguin UK. Yeah. Uh, it was it was the idea of Der- Jeremy Ettinghausen, who's the digital publisher at Penguin UK, to um, open a wiki, uh, which is um, how what's a simple way to explain a wiki? Basically, it's like putting up a document on the internet that anybody can write in. Or edit the most yeah. famous wiki, of course, is Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, so it, Jeremy's idea was to open a, a, a wiki for um, five weeks that anyone in the world could contribute to hmm. to write a novel. Uh, with it. can a community write a novel? This was the question that that Jeremy posed. Um, so this team of students and I and Jeremy and another editor from Penguin called John Ellett were involved in, in this project and it was um, a huge sort of firestorm in cyberspace. It was really an extraordinary kind of roller coaster ride for five weeks where um, 1,500 people um, contributed to a million penguins, um, 80,000 people um, read it during the, that period, and um, it's a kind of wild, it's a kind of wild, wild thing. <laughs> Um, any, any editing? Um, mostly editing. Mostly editing. That's what mostly what it was. It was mostly people writing things and then editing each other's things. Um, huh. uh, and it um, it's quite possibly unreadable, um, but it's uh, very interesting. <laughs> it's one of those things where the process was yeah. really the interesting part of the uh, the part of the project. Um, so the answer to your um, your self-posed question, can a community write a novel, would be? And not unless there's a whole lot of rules uh-huh. and a whole lot of masters and bosses and things, people out there controlling it. Um, that is, if what you mean, you know, what you really want at the end of the day is a coherent, coherent linear text that mm-hmm. resembles the work of a single author. Right. Um, and the million penguins got nowhere near that, but it did. I mean, I, it did make me think again about the possibilities for um, collaboration with strangers mm. on the internet, mm. and the kinds of conversations that can arise out of that. Um, and I guess, really, I have a kind of romantic idea of the network as well, the way that. Um, the way, the positive way in which the internet enables people to connect. There's so much stuff these days about how evil the internet is. Um, <clears throat> how if your teenager is a member of Bebo, she'll kill herself, and you know all that kind of yeah. stuff that we, that we hear about. But I do think that if I had been, if the internet had been around when I was a teenager. I would have loved it. I would have, you know, I lived in this remote part of Canada. I would have loved to have been able to find somebody else who listened to Joy Division. 
um, and didn't just so that I, you know, didn't feel like a total lunatic out there on the fringe. <laughs> um, so, you know, I do, that's, that's part of, gosh, I'm really babbling now. Sorry. It's all right. That's great. <laughs> I, I haven't finished asking you questions. I know other people want to. Um, I want to ask you about, um, night walking. Oh yeah. That's a big part of your life, isn't it? Uh, well, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, I like the city at night. So you're not you're not in the Jackie Smith camp on that. No, definitely not. No, I think you're re- you're referring to another piece that I wrote recently, which was in, in response to to the Home Secretary saying that there was certain parts of London that she was afraid to walk in mm. by herself at night. Um, but um, yeah, London for me, uh, London's a city that I've always felt very uh, safe in, and. Um, I feel that it's my right to inhabit the city at night. Donna. Hmm. I, I just, uh, I've just been informed that I should tell you my funny story about the piano, which is that the person who told me to go see it, it was uh, actually Bill Clinton. Um, we were, um, I was with my husband at the time, so ignore the Monica jokes that will come out of Richard. Um, but uh, he said that uh, we should go see it, and that, but that it didn't really um, reflect well on men. So, and I think he was probably right about that. But he said it was a good movie. <laughs> How very prescient. <laughs> yeah, as it turns out. I was just going to say, it's one of those movies that people either hated or loved. Nobody, nobody sat on the fence about that movie. Well, I, I'm not sure what his real opinion of it was, but I think that uh, he figured I would like it for some reason. That's because he wanted to get you in the cinema on your own. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you I was with my husband at the time. <laughs> so, Kate, what can we um, look to the future and see you getting up to, do you think? Um, I was just experimenting with phones, really, with, with oh. seeing if, if anybody wants to read anything on their phone. Um, mm. You know, as you you probably read those articles talking about how in Japan, five of the best selling, five of the top best selling books originated as phone novels um, last year, Um, and it's not something anybody seems to be experimenting with here. So, this is something I'm really interested in. Yeah. So just moving towards summing this up then, I mean, you, you actually have a message of hope, don't you, to, to your, your fellow authors. This isn't the end of the world quite, is it? Yeah, absolutely not the end of the world. In fact, I'm, I get rather tired of people telling me it's a brave new world. Hmm. But I do think that there are lots of possibilities for writers out there. And I think that there's, you know, there's good reason to be cautious. There's good reason to worry about your copyright, good reason to worry about your livelihood, um, you know, with with things changing as rapidly as they are, yeah. but I think that you know we need to be educated and we need to we need to to make opportunities. We can't you know you, you can't just sit back and wait for publishers to to come along and you know ask you to to contribute to to whatever they're trying to do digitally. Hmm. I think you know we need to be out there. Um, thinking about it ourselves, making suggestions, you know, experimenting. And making things happen. Now, that's that's the other... I mean, how do you do that? Because a lot of authors have got the ideas, but they, you know, they don't know how to collaborate. They don't necessarily, you know, want to do any networking. I mean, how, how do you get from that, that, that important stage that I think for a lot of people seems a, a difficult jump from, you know, from the idea to actually making it happen on the net? Well, I think... I think 
part of I'm 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 personally not not much of a, a networker myself. It's not really something that I that I'm that comfortable with. Mm. But I but and I think I've had an advantage in that I was um, reasonably well established as a print novelist, yeah. um, and in the digital realm that was very unusual. So um, initially in the digital realm. Uh, doors opened for me because I was a, a, pub, a so-called published writer. Yeah. Uh, and now the converse is happening. In the publishing world, doors are opening for me because yeah. I, I I know about things digital. Yes. So it's Happy yeah. You're building up a brand. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll sue you, given how to. <laughs> 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 oh dear, uh, Eve. Um, we've we've heard some tantalising little um, uh, morsels tonight about uh, what, what I'm fancifully rather, you know, rather fancy. I'm not not going to talk about the brave new world because I get into trouble from Kate. Uh, but I'm fancifully <laughs> calling author 2.0. You know, we've seen, we've heard some attributes, and it all sounds quite quite positive. Actually, I mean, are you excited about this? You're terrified. I'm terrified completely. Yes, I am terrified Why? <laughs> when i well, when i started writing you you wrote a book and uh, you saw it on a bookshelf there's just now there's just all this stuff i'm hearing it's completely different it's opened up so many different things uh, it's quite scary well i don't know just you know just take it one step at a time and poke around and see what's out there and and uh, you know try things on for size and see what see what you like i mean I think that, there, and I, I still think, uh, like I said at the beginning, that um, the book is not going away, and the book is, uh, you know, we we love we love books, and we and as readers, books are a fantastic way of getting a story delivered to us, um, and that uh, you know I think that that's that's going to be the case for a long time. Richard, have you got the um, what it takes to to be author two point zero? I think I do, uh, though, like Eve, I'm. I'm, I'm come into the idea of wanting to just have a book published you know that's that's my goal although i'm i'm quite happy to go off and develop ideas and and really get out there and see what we can do with it but ultimately it always comes back to wanting to say hey i wrote a book yes it does doesn't it yeah um, and, and Donna, author 2.0, mean anything to oh, I would love to do some digital stuff. I, I've always enjoyed working with the web, if, with my law firm. I always try to make sure that my website's updated and um, has the most current stuff and can be found. I, I like it, and I, I think we have to stay up with the times. Yes. Brilliant. Um, well, I want to thank Kate Pollinger very much indeed for making time to be with us tonight. Um, I think we've learned a lot from you, Kate. I think we've learned to become more experimental, to sort of st- stop thinking about 90,000 words between two cardboard covers and start to think about possibilities um, to collaborate, to think about collaborating a lot more and maybe not to fear the future quite so much. Is that right? That sounds good. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Kate, thank you so much for giving us your time tonight. It's been terrific. Um, you have heard from Kate Pollinger, Eve Harvey, Donna Ballman and Richard Howes. We've had a good time tonight. Let's do it all again next week. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that was the show, and this is The Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers' Colony. The main website address is www.litopia.com. Litopia is one of the oldest and, dare we say, most interesting writing communities on the net. If you're serious about your writing, join us. Show notes and links referenced in this episode can be found on our podcast.
podcast website. The address is podcast.litopia.com. There's no www, just type podcast.litopia.com, and you're there. Our podcast site is packed full of useful information, such as step-by-step instructions showing you how to subscribe to our podcasts using iTunes. You can also sign up to have our fulsome show notes delivered automatically to your mailbox just as soon as each show is released. We're more than keen to have your comments, feedback, and suggestions for future shows or guests. You'll find simple instructions on how to do all these things on the website. And if you've enjoyed the show, do spread the word and share it with a friend. This is Peter Cox thanking you for listening and looking forward to being back with you again soon.